So what is the deal with the Bible and slavery? I mean, that's finally the question we're going to deal with quite a bit in this message. Some people will say, I can't believe in a book that is okay with slavery. And they use that as an excuse, as at least their stated reason, sometimes to say, well, I'm not going to believe the Bible, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be a Christian because, well, the Bible's okay with slavery. And so, obviously, it's messed up, so I'm going to reject the whole thing. Well, is that really the reason people reject uh, the Lord, or is that a smokescreen? But even more importantly, we have to ask, is this the case, that the Bible is uh, just, is it okay with slavery? Is it something that uh, those that were in the American South uh, before the Civil War should have been using the Bible to uh, say that what they were doing was acceptable? So we're going to deal with that, and we're going to look at this issue as we talk about Philemon, which was this letter that was written to uh, Philemon, who had a runaway slave named Onesimus. So to give us a little bit of a recap of this, of this series, three main characters that we need to remember. Paul is the author of this letter, and he is currently a prisoner in Rome writing this letter. And he is writing to this guy named Philemon, who's a well-to-do Christian in the city of Colossae, about a thousand miles away. And he is writing to him because one of Philemon's, uh, at least one of his, his, we don't know how many slaves he had, but a slave that he had named Onesimus had ran away, had found Paul, had become a Christian through Paul's influence and his teaching. And now Paul had written uh, Philemon. He had also written the biblical book of Colossians. And these letters were being sent back uh, along with uh, Onesimus to deliver them to the church in Colossae and met in the house of Philemon and to be read out loud. So this letter is being read with Philemon uh, in, in the audience. Onesimus is probably standing right there wondering what's going to happen. How is he going to respond to all of this? Uh, they might have read the book of Colossians first, but you have this short letter here. So let's read this whole thing together. Uh, just kind of one last time, and we're going to specifically deal with the last few verses and then talk about this issue of, of slavery and other lessons that we can learn from Philemon. So let's read this together. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Remember the name Onesimus literally means useful. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So you have the entire uh, reading of this short letter to Philemon. Uh, just a few just kind of extra things I want to point out. Look at verse 22. Paul is saying that he expects to be released. We know from the other prison letters, he didn't know for sure, but he thought this was going to happen. And this was um, he, his hope. But notice that he said, uh, verse 22, um, prepare a guest room for me because he is expecting he's going to be released. Uh, from this imprisonment, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. And just uh, one little nugget that we can take from that is that Paul saw prayer as part of the reason why he would be delivered. He believed that God was sovereign, and he probably knew that his accusers didn't have a case against him. They weren't going to come. But Paul saw that, that prayer is part of the cause and effect system that was going to result in his release. And so when we pray, yes, we do believe that God is sovereign. We do believe that he has, he has, he has a plan. But we also need to remember that, that prayer is part of, this, part of the whole plan and is part of this cause and effect system that God has put together. So we're not fatalists. We don't just sit back and say, well, you know, no point praying about things because whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Sometimes God does things in part because we pray. He's also ordained that we pray, but it is important that we do these things. And also, this shows that it's okay for us to pray for the relief of persecuted Christians. I mean, also pray for their faithfulness. That's even more important. But we can also be praying for their relief as well. Also, another thing, in verse 23, he lists some of these fellow workers, and one of them is Demas. And it doesn't say anything here, but when you read 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Paul is put back into prison, probably after being released, and this time he is uh, in prison in, in Rome. And this is not just house arrest. He is in, he's in a dungeon. And, um, and I was actually, when we were in Rome, I was able to go into that location, and it is just this small, you know, uh, wet circular, you know, room, which is, uh, it's just awful. And he knew that at this point that he was going to be put to death. And there are sad words in 2 Timothy 4.10. He writes, uh, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And what a tragic legacy that is for Demas. That he just, he fell in love with the world. We don't know exactly what that means. The people, the pleasures, other things captured his desire. And instead of sticking with Paul and being faithful to him, he abandoned him for, for the love of the world. And may that be a warning to all of us. But as we look at these last few verses here, uh, we see verse 21, Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. So the first point I want to kind of draw from this is we look at uh, Philemon as a whole and also this last part of verse 21 is Paul may have been seeking to persuade Philemon to, to free Onesimus. And biblical commentators, they, they uh, debate this. And there are good conservative commentators that take different views on this as well. And some that say, well, no, he really wasn't uh, implying that this is what had to happen uh, basically, the, the only command that is given is he's saying, okay, receive uh, Onesimus back as you would receive me, you know, so don't, don't kill him, you know, punish him, don't uh, brand a uh, F for fugitive on his forehead or, or these things that would commonly take place. Receive him back as a, as a brother in Christ and be kind to him. 
Uh, and I think that's the very least that Paul is saying that he needs, that Philemon needs to do. But I think even though Paul isn't saying it, I think when we look here, we can connect the dots and see, you know, I think Paul is at least indirectly trying to get Philemon to realize, I need to just set him free. I need to just let him go. But he, Paul isn't coming out and commanding this to happen. He wants it to be something that Philemon does voluntarily from, from his own heart. He's persuading him to do this. Even though we can see, he, he talks about obedience, he talks about doing the right thing, um, but he wants him to do the right thing and to do it from the heart. I think three verses that, or places in the scripture that I think are, are strong hints that this is happening. One back in verse 13, Paul had expressed his desire for Onesimus to stay with him. And verse 13 says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. You know, hint, hint, uh, you know, Philemon, he's really helpful. It'd be great to still have him with me and to, to serve. He says, in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. And then in verse 15 and 16, Paul states that, that perhaps Onesimus uh, was parted with Philemon so that Philemon could have him back, the passage says, no longer as a bondservant or, or a slave, um, but more than that, and then it says, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So what does that mean? What's he getting at there? Because Onesimus has become a Christian, and so now he is more than a bondservant or a slave in the Lord. He is his brother in Christ in the Lord. But if you're saying he's more, he could be more than this in the flesh too, it seems to be that he's trying to get uh, Philemon to realize this would be meaning treating him as a brother and setting him free that he's no longer a slave. And then in verse 21, which was from this section, notice it says, confident of your obedience. Uh, Paul's confident that you know, Philemon is going to do the right thing. He says, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So the bare minimum was, okay, receive him back, don't punish him. But he's saying, I think you're going to do even more than this. I think you're going to come through with, with something else. And so I think it's uh, likely to think that this even more that Paul was trying to get at was, hey, you know, set him free. You know, let him go. Give him, give him his freedom. And so then he can help me. He can be a, a brother to you and, and not your, your slave anymore. So Paul's not outright saying it. And uh, some have said, well, you know, maybe you know, Paul, if he just wanted him to do this, he would have came around and say it, said it. But he's trying to persuade him. He's trying to get Philemon to, to connect the dots and to do this from his heart. So personally, I think that this is what Paul was uh, asking um, Philemon to do. And you know, we don't have like a record of exactly what happened, uh, but I think that's what happened. And I think if there had been a bad outcome to this whole thing, I don't think the Lord would have had this be a book of the Bible for us. Um, there's also uh, a church leader that's recorded in the early church. Uh, and we don't know for sure if it's the same, you know, Onesimus. Uh, but a church leader of one of the early churches that uh, gets written about that is named Onesimus. And you wonder, who knows? But wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to find out? <clears throat> so in this passage... Yes, I think that um, Paul is trying to get him to, to release Onesimus, to, to free him. second point I want to talk about, and we'll spend a little bit of time here, because we have to anticipate what might be on our minds. Say, okay, that's, that's great that he uh, is trying to get uh, Philemon to do this, but it's natural for us to wonder why Paul did not outright condemn the institution of slavery. You know, why didn't he say, uh, take this as an opportunity to say, you know, have a, some verses say all slavery is bad. Uh, no Christian should have a slave. You should release him and you're obligated to do this. And we think that would have really, you know, helped things out. We could have avoided a lot of, a lot of problems in the world in America. You know, why, why didn't uh, Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is part of God's word, just, uh, just say that and make this really clear. So it's natural to wonder this. So I want to give a few things uh, to kind of think about. And we've talked about a, f a few of these things, but I want to go a little bit more in depth. And the first and maybe the, one of the most important is that we need to realize 
that Jewish slavery and Roman slavery were not identical with slavery that was in the New World, uh, both in the Americas, the colonies, and even in Europe, and actually so many places in the world had, had slavery. Uh, but oftentimes when we think of slavery, we think of the American South before the Civil War and exactly what that is like, and we uh, picture slavery always being like that all the time. And there were other examples of slavery that were really deplorable. Uh, for the Jews to be enslaved by the Egyptians was not a good thing, and slavery was just rampant throughout the, the world. There's still slavery in a lot of different places. Uh, there's people being you know, smuggled into this country to work uh, you know, basically as, um, as slave laborers uh, by cartels and different things. Uh, there's, so there's things going on in uh, some places in Asia. It's just uh, there's sex trafficking and human trafficking. It's terrible things. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're distinguishing because when we read the Old Testament, we do see it talks about slavery. You read the Ten Commandments, and right after the Ten Commandments are given in the book of Exodus, it talks about laws about, about slavery. And then why would it initially go right to that? And I used to think that was kind of weird until I realized, well, yeah, the Hebrews that are receiving the Ten Commandments just came out of slavery themselves. And so uh, the Lord is instructing them, yeah, you're not going to do that kind of slavery. You're not going to do this. Um, it was something that was going to be regulated very, very differently. So let me talk about Jewish slavery, because even Jewish slavery and Roman slavery uh, were different, and they were not the same as uh, American slavery um, that uh, we're more familiar with. According to Old Testament law, you could sell yourself into slavery. And also slavery was limited in uh, duration. I said Exodus 21 is a place that, um, that talks about slavery. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, uh, verse 12, uh, is a passage. This also mentions uh, freeing female slaves as well as the expectation that freed slave was to be, a freed slave was to be furnished generously. Uh, both mention the opportunity of voluntary life service. They were to serve for a number of, of years, a six-year period, and then after that, there were regulations in Scripture that if the, uh, the slave decided, okay, I've served my six years, it was a limited period, so that's a big difference, and if they didn't want to go free, they could decide to be a, a permanent willing slave. Maybe they thought, hey, I have a better thing going here than if I'm just homeless and jobless and scrounging for myself in, in the world. Remember, they didn't have all the um, you know, social programs and different things. Uh, you, know, it, you could be in a real hard situation. And if they thought, hey, I have a good master and I want to do this willingly, there was a um, Deuteronomy 15 uh, <coughs> talks about a ceremony where they would pierce their ear with an awl and it would be symbolizing that they were willing to be this person's slave voluntarily after this. Uh, but this, for Hebrew slaves, it was, they could sell themselves into it if, and there would be reason for that if they got themselves into huge financial trouble and their family is going to be destitute, they would sometimes sell themselves into slavery and really it was more like a six-year work contract. So it's, even right there, you see, it's, it's a different animal than uh, what we normally think of. Um, Leviticus 25, 38 through 45, also mentions self-slavery, but in the sense of a hired worker, an indentured servant. And also, they were to be freed when you hit a year of jubilee, which was every 50 years. So there would be this time where the, the slaves would also be set free. Um, the Leviticus passage also says that they may buy slaves from the nations around them and that these slaves may be kept permanently. Um, but Leviticus uh, 25, 47 through 55, talk about the redemption of slaves based on the remaining years of service until the next year of Jubilee. Um, and the point of this was to remind uh, Israel, uh, that Israelites, that no Israelite should be, again be a slave forever. War captives could become slaves. But you have to think of the ancient world, and uh, the other option often was just you know killing them, you know slaughtering them. So I mean it was a, it was a different world you know, that they were living in. Um, 
Deuteronomy 21 talks about the expectation, uh, you know, if they had this, um, were captives to either marry female slaves, captives, or to set them free. And if they displeased their husband, they could not just be made slaves, they had to be set free. But a big key one is that there was not supposed to be kidnapping that was a place where you get slaves from. Uh, so it was one thing, you know, somebody sells themselves into a work contract for six years, but you could not have it through kidnapping. So this really needs to be stressed. Exodus twenty-one sixteen reads, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So you got the death sentence for, for kidnapping or human trafficking. Deuteronomy 24.7 says the same thing, but specifically for Israelites. Okay, but is, is that just Old Testament? 1 Timothy in the New Testament 1.10 lists uh, kidnapping as, uh, as a sin. And different translations, uh, <clears throat> when I looked at this, uh, the King James said man-stealers. Uh, NASB and New King James have kidnappers. ESV, enslavers. Uh, NIV, slave traders. And so this is something that is ruled out. So if you think of just that, this rules out American slavery that we had in the South because that was based on kidnapping. And it was based, that's where these slaves came from. And oftentimes they would be kidnapped um, in Africa, oftentimes by other um, people on their continent, sold to the slave traders. But it was all based on kidnapping. And this was not supposed to be the case. So I think for me, that's a huge reason why we should realize that, okay, what slavery became and what it was in the South, this, this, is, this was you know, just poisonous and not to be at all. Exodus 21, 26 through 27 says that if a slave was injured by his master, he was to be set free. And it gives two examples, the loss of an eye or a tooth being knocked out. Exodus 21.12 says that the murder of a slave was punishable by death. Hebrew slaves had a right to personal property, and eventually they could even save up enough that they could redeem themselves. Uh, to redeem literally means to, to, be, to buy out of slavery, to set free at a price, so they could save up and they could uh, buy out their contract and be, be set free. And Deuteronomy 23.15-16 states that runaway slaves should not be given up to their masters. So if a slave did run away, they were not to, to give them up and return them to the masters. So for there, we see that Hebrew slavery, okay, the Old Testament does talk about slavery. You can see this is quite a different thing that we're talking about. It's uh, more towards like a six-year indentured servant work contract. And yeah, during that time, they didn't have uh, the type of freedom that, that you, would, you know, would want. Uh, but it was a different situation. And for the culture at the time, uh, there were needs for this. Um, rather than just being absolutely destitute, sometimes it was a last measure that um, some people uh, chose to, to utilize. Now, Roman slavery, we have to talk about that because that's also a different thing than Hebrew slavery. Slavery was very common in Rome and the Roman Empire. Uh, it said that about maybe one-third of the city of Rome uh, was slaves, and maybe another third of the city was made of former slaves that had been set free. And a big thing to realize in the Roman world, and so this would apply to Colossae and to you know, Philemon and Nesimus in their situation, uh, Roman slavery was not race-based. It was not based on the color of your skin, your ethnicity, where you came from, what you looked like. You could not tell who a slave was just by looking at them. They, would look, they could be from all kinds of nationalities and they could look just like you. And also, uh, many slaves held prestigious jobs. Some would be teachers, advisors, uh, doctors. Um, you know, some you know, working in the salt mines too, but there could be a variety of different ways uh, they, that they would serve. You could not tell a slave by their clothing. Uh, <clears throat> so there was uh, nothing you know, that would you would see about them. Slaves had clothing that was not inferior to the, uh, a free person with the same skill sets. And actually, there was a point where at one point in Rome, uh, one of the senators uh, proposed 
that they should require slaves to wear particular clothing to identify them as slaves. Uh, but they actually shot that down because they realized, well, the slaves will realize how many slaves there are, and uh, they might start getting ideas at that point. But you couldn't tell, you know, who were, these, who were the slaves in the Roman world. Many slaves were already being set free even in the first uh, century. Uh, there's a study of uh, tax records that show that many slaves were being manumitted, that means being set free. And during the period, um, even right before Christ, from 81 to 49 BC, there were about a half a million slaves that were set free. Uh, and the population of, of Rome at that time was only about 870,000. So there was a lot of, of um, movement as far as even kind of moving away from slavery at this point, in some ways even already. Also, even in the Roman system, slavery was not usually permanent. Cicero made the point that a worthy slave could expect his freedom in about seven years. And so again, another big difference. Uh, it might be sometimes, in some cases longer than that, uh, but it was also not a permanent thing. A master would often... Um, establish his, his freedman in whatever business he had trained him in, and then the master would become kind of a shareholder in it. So, okay, you've worked for me, I've trained you, and now once you're freed, you become, oftentimes you, you work for me, and so the, the master now becomes kind of an investor in that. Many Roman slaves had advantages equal to their free counterpoints, and many slaves um, had better living conditions than the freemen who slept in the streets or in, or in cheap rooms. Um, it said that a free laborer in, in New Testament times was seldom in better circumstances than his slave counterpoint. And when you look at even the, the costs of, you know, what uh, a, a, a day laborer was paid, and then you subtract the expenses from that, and you realize that a, a slave being provided with food, housing, and clothes uh, being provided and if they were given uh, five denarii a month for spending, uh, sometimes would end up with more savings uh, than a free man that was having to take care of himself. Now, in saying all this, I am not saying that slavery is good. Okay? I'm saying that we need to recognize that American slavery was much different than Hebrew slavery or even Roman slavery. American slavery was based on kidnapping and was unbiblical. In addition, we need to remember that it was, it was Christians who finally abolished slavery uh, because Christian principles told them that all men are created equal and that slavery and what they were doing was wrong. So these are things that I think are helpful that we need uh, to realize. A few other things to realize, If getting back to the question of why didn't Paul just say, you know, um, hey, you know, slavery is wrong and, and be more direct on this. Another thing that we need to realize is that really to abolish slavery, the abolition of slavery would have been uh, just impossible at this time. I mean, to just completely get rid of it, to make that a goal, uh, was just not going to happen anytime soon. It was too entrenched everywhere in the world and to all their systems of how they, they did things. And that's not saying that we never speak out against things that are entrenched in society, but also if this was the main goal that they were trying to do, it just it wouldn't have been a realistic thing anytime soon, especially because the church was small at this point. There were not a lot of Christians, and there was not a lot of influence that they had. And so they, just, they didn't have the ability to do this. Many things would need to happen to change society, happen in society to make this change possible first. You know, in addition, um, the freeing of first century slaves would not always have been the unqualified good for the freed slave. I took that phrase, unqualified good, from a commentary by um, uh, Douglas Moo. Uh, but I thought that was helpful to realize, we think, okay, just, it'd definitely be better to be freed. Well, in that society, you'd like to think that, but oftentimes not. And oftentimes it could mean that you just, you're unemployed with no food, with no home. Uh, it'd be great if you were able to you know, get employment and get that going. Uh, but oftentimes, you, know, you were out of the frying pan and into the fire. And that's just something to, 
uh, realize as part of it, again, that's not to justify slavery, but that is a realization we need to have. Another thing we need to realize is that the gospel needed to spread first. The gospel needed to be taken around, and this was going to be, um, you know, eventually it's the gospel that permeates society and that uh, helped change and help slavery to be eliminated. But there were many social evils in the world. There really were. And people needed to be saved and changed by Christ first. It was the order of things that needed to happen. And I think it's, other people have commented on this, and I think there's truth to this, that there would have been a danger that um, if Paul would have gone in, in hard against you know, slavery right from the beginning, there would have been a danger that, that people around would have seen Christianity, which was still very, very, very new and not really well understood by people watching it, as primarily an anti-slavery movement. And they may have you know, rejected it just because, oh, we know what you're all about, it's just an anti-slavery thing. And so whether slaves or slave owners might have just you know, written it off and not understood what Christianity was really about and what they needed to know about uh, the, the lordship of Christ and forgiveness in Christ and these things that they needed to understand first. And so a hard, instant message against slavery um, likely would have squelched the spread of the gospel message because it's all that people would have, they would have heard. And the Christian message did contain the seeds that eventually resulted in the abolition of slavery. That is something we need to realize. I mean, slavery's been throughout the world. We can't just think of America South. I mean, everywhere has had slavery. And it has been through the influence of Christianity that slavery has... Uh, you know, been, um, they've been abolished. The influence that all people are created in the image of God, that all people, whether they're uh, free or slave, are created in the influence of God, are equal in, in dignity and value and in worth. And messages like in Colossians 3.11, that in Christ there is no longer slave and free, that we don't divide ourselves in these ways uh, because of, uh, race or status in these ways, but there's oneness. These were seeds that, that resulted in change. And there are times when people got it wrong and drifted back into things and made excuses for slavery that they definitely should not have done. But the way it actually played out in history is Christians that led the charge with Christian principles and a worldview to get rid of slavery. It was Christians such as William Wilberforce who pushed for the abolition of slavery in, in England. And then other abolitionists later on in America that did the same thing. So as we talk about this too, when we think about Philemon, we think of some of these principles. Um, I have just kind of two more that I want to briefly give to you. But one of the things that we can take from this a step further is to realize Christianity changes society by changing people first. The way that Christianity affects society is by, by changing people, by creating Christians that have a different worldview, that have a different, a different attitude. And this is the exact opposite to what is um, referred to sometimes as the social gospel. If you've had that term, or heard that term, the social gospel tries to fix society first. And the social gospel views ultimately that it's society that is the problem. In fact, there's one book that uh, was written uh, years ago called Moral Man in Immoral Society. And they've, a lot of times it goes along with liberalism that you know, people are basically good according to the social gospel. It's not a sin problem in our heart that's the problem. It's society. And the, the structures of society are what are causing all the ills that we have. And so according to the social gospel, the thing that we need to do first is to fix society. And if we can fix all those structures, then everything else falls into place because people are basically good. And it's just sinful society that is, uh, that is causing the problems. Now, that's not to say that there's no sin in society or that there's things that are, that are wrong in the way that uh, things are. But this gets the order of it inverted, uh, viewing uh, people as basically good, but just society as corrupt. 
but in the social gospel, it's society that ultimately that needs redemption, not people. So sometimes they don't even talk about people being saved or people being redeemed. It's all about fixing society. And so you get into all these you know, different you know, political action things. It becomes about this rather than what's going on for us. Now, this is not to say that we should not speak out in favor of true justice and that we, should, uh, we shouldn't speak out. I'm not saying that we should not speak out against evils such as abortion or racism. However, real change comes through Christian people changing institutions in the world's uh, things that are around them, not primarily by the organized, the local church changing institutions first. Let me explain that a little more. The purpose of the local church is the Great Commission. So the, the church, if you say, what's the mission of the church? Well, the, the local church, we're gathered, we're organized. The purpose ultimately is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So the purpose of the, the local church is evangelism, discipleship, helping people come to know the Lord and to be forgiven, and then helping them to grow as Christians, as believers, having their lives changed. Well, part of that is discipleship. And part of that also means that we are equipping believers for every good work. And so the church equips the saints, which is the Christians, and then the Christians, according to their callings, also go into the world and hopefully make the world a better place. And that by being you know, a good worker, being a good neighbor, you know, helping uh, the way that you are a good citizen, the way that you vote. And so the church, as the local church, doesn't do these things directly. And if we did, we're getting away from our, our main mission, but indirectly by making Christians with a Christian worldview are going to help society be a better place. And that has what has happened. The Christian influence on our nation is huge. We would not have all the freedoms. We would not have all, the, uh, all these good things that we enjoy if it wasn't for Christian principles that had, that had permeated our nation. And there's good and bad because we're still sinners. But you take the Christianity out of it and the world becomes an ugly place really quick. That's part of what we're seeing going on. You know, the world is kind of going on to the momentum of Christian values, as, even as it's getting away from Christian values. And that only happens, that only lasts for a little while before uh, it's just everything completely goes off the track. So it is a matter of, uh, when you talk about what is the mission of the church, the local church, yep, evangelism, discipleship. But if you think of all Christians um, as the church, well, it's whatever calling God has for you, and you live that out in the world. And by doing this, we're helping to make the world a better place. Today you hear the word uh, social justice a lot, which wouldn't have to be a bad thing. We would want there to be real biblical justice in society. Unfortunately, what's called today social justice is often let's face it, socialist justice rather than biblical justice. So the church produces Christians, change society for better. Sometimes it's by setting a counterexample, by showing that here we do things different. You know, here we don't treat people differently according to uh, their social status or their race uh, or any of these things, but we come together, we're one in Christ, and it's an example to the world. And other times, it's also by Christians working in their callings in the community. You know, example of one person that did this, I mentioned before, was William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce was, in, he was an evangelical Christian, and he was also a member of the British Parliament back when uh, the British Empire still had the slave trade going on. And William Wilberforce was the main person uh, that resulted in change in the whole British Empire. Uh, he fought against the African slave trade and against slavery itself until both of these were abolished, made illegal in the British Empire. First, uh, the slave trade, uh, but then finally slavery itself. And it took him 46 years 
to do this. It was his, his life mission and his, his calling under God that he felt to, to do this. Uh, from 1787 to 1833, the bill to abolish the slave trade was defeated in Parliament 11 times before it was finally passed in 1807. And the battle for finally getting rid of slavery itself in the British Empire uh, didn't really get significant victory until 1833, three days before he died. But William Wilberforce, I mean, if you want to you know, read about him, uh, there was a movie a number of years ago called Amazing Grace that kind of uh, has his story. But you know, it was his you know, Christian convictions and his worldview that drove him to do this. And finally, as we think about Philemon, we think about so many uh, purposes in this. It's this letter of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of being truly set free. Point four here for our message. Christianity aims for reconciliation, not division. That's what it aims for. doesn't always get this. It's not reconciliation at any cost. God wants people reconciled to him, but if people refuse, you can have the offer of salvation. Christ died on the cross. He made provision. Uh, you can be saved. But if you, if you reject that and say, I don't want the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be accountable for my own sin. Well, you'll end up permanently separated from God forever in, in hell uh, if that's what you choose. But God doesn't want that. He offers for you uh, forgiveness. He offers for you this, this gospel of, of reconciliation being brought back into fellowship. That's what reconciliation means. You're no longer hostile, but you're brought back together. And Christianity is all about this, both between people and God and horizontally between people as well. I want to comment on this because this is such a big thing in our society today. What is called critical race theory, maybe you've heard on this in the news or uh, it's a lot of college campuses and schools and different things. A big problem with critical race theory, when you realize what it really is, is it focuses on division rather than reconciliation. It focuses on division. If critical race theory was just about saying that racism was bad, we would totally agree with that. I'd be all on board if that's all it was about, because racism is bad. And we need to reject that. That is, that is sin. But critical race theory doesn't teach, and you read the actual authors, the people that are behind it, whether they use the phrase critical race theory or not, it doesn't teach that we should not judge people based on the color of their skin. I mean, we think we, you shouldn't judge people based on the color of their skin, and you would think that that's what they would say as well. But in contrast, critical race theory, it literally teaches that it separates People against people, that you have two groups. One is the oppressed and the other is the oppressors, and it's all based on the color of your skin. And according to critical race theory, all people of color are the oppressed victims. All people that are uh, whites are the privileged oppressors. And according to what they, they state straight out, that all white people are racist and all people of color just can't be racist because they're oppressed, and if you think about it, this is actually judging people based on the color of their skin. Critical race theory focuses on divisions. I mean, that's what the critical part is. It looks for the problems. And it's kind of like you have a crack in the sidewalk, you know, and then, you know, you get the water in it, and you know what happens. You know, it freezes, and then it just breaks your sidewalk up. That's like their goal, to, like, look for these problems and to make the, the problems bigger. Because... In this theory and what it's based on, uh, coming out of, well, Marxism, where you have these two different uh, people groups, it's not about reform. It's about breaking things down to start over. We believe that all of society in America is so corrupt from the beginning that, the, that what we need to do is just break it down all the way to the bottom, just destroy it so they can build it up according to their ideology. And that's what the critical and critical race theory uh, is about. Like Marxism, they, they don't want reform. They want to actually amp up the division because they want a complete reboot of society under their ideology. And in critical race theory, there can never be reconciliation and for forgiveness. 
because if you are well, a white person, you're always going to be racist, and the only thing that you can do is become, in their words, woke. You can realize this and do the permanent, basically constant work and penance of being anti-racist, which for them in function really means supporting policies and the politicians that they tell you to support. So that's why there's a lot of problem with critical race theory. We don't have time to go more into this, but I think it does kind of touch on some of the things that come out of as we think about themes in, in Philemon. Now, as I say this, right now, and I realize, you know, the um, kind of where probably a lot of our church lands on some of these issues, if you've heard about critical race theory, it might be something that you've already said, yeah, I want no part of this. This seems messed up. Let me also give the reminder here, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater, okay? Um, You've heard that expression, it means that if there is, you know, something good, the baby is good, you want to get rid of the bathwater, okay? So the thing that we want to realize, let's not forget about the fact that racism is bad, okay? And we want to be not anti-racist in the way that they tell us, but actually against racism. Racism is bad, we want to be examining our hearts, because I believe that everyone has seeds of sin in our hearts, you know, that could, that could grow. And this goes for every type of person, and that includes seeds of racism. We want to look at that. Not say, I don't think it's wise to say everyone's a racist, but we all have the seeds, and we want to examine ourselves, don't we? And if there's anything in us, whether it's big or whether it's subtle, whether it's in our thoughts or our actions, we want to get rid of that. So don't, on one hand, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, We also need to be aware on the other side, you don't want to uh, pump the baby full of bathwater, okay? You don't want to take the baby and say, well, if you want to accept this baby, you have to take everything that we tell you with this. And so whether we pump into it socialism and Marxism and all these different ideologies, and if you want to claim to be uh, non-racist, you have to do all these things and vote for progressives and foolish policies and, and, and whatnot, so don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't get so concerned about critical race theory that we forget that the Bible is against racism. And we need to examine ourselves and make sure that we don't have any of that in our lives or in our hearts. Christianity aims for reconciliations, reconciliation between rebel sinners and the Lord, first of all. It also aims for reconciliation between people and especially within the body of Christ. So we see an example of this. Paul was seeking for reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. He wanted them, they're brothers in Christ now, to be reunited and to accept each other in this way. And lastly, it is by God's grace alone, God's grace alone through Jesus Christ on the cross that sinners can be forgiven, reconciled, and made truly free. I mentioned William Wilberforce. He was influenced by a pastor uh, named John Newton. John Newton, he was a pastor, you think he must have had a pretty great, you know, spiritual, uh, sinless life. Nope, John Newton was the former captain of a slave trading ship. He was a slave trader, and he was a notorious sinner. He would blaspheme the Lord. He would... Uh, tell people, he would challenge people to come up with a sin that he hadn't committed, and then he would commit it. That's how much he was against the Lord. And at one time, when he was out on a ship, there was a violent storm, and he thought, this ship is going to sink. One man had already been swept overboard, and John Newton was, he was manning the pumps uh, because parts of the ship were filling up with water, and after hours of pumping, he said, out loud, he said, if this will not do, Lord, have mercy on us. And when he said this, he realized this was the first time he ever caught himself saying out loud uh, his need for the Lord's mercy. And he heard himself saying this, and it started to speak to his heart through this. And he started to realize, what mercy can there be from God for a guy like me? And the sin that I have committed, all these things, and I'm a slave trader and doing this. And eventually he started, he started reading the Bible, reading the message about Jesus Christ and who he was, and that Jesus came to, to seek and save the lost, to save sinners, not just mild sinners, but, but deep, 
deep, hardened sinners like him and like you and like me. And he realized this, and eventually uh, he was saved by the grace of God. He knew that he could never um, do anything to earn God's pleasure. I mean, he had done so many bad things, he could never make up for this, but he realized that Jesus Christ had paid the price for him. And years later, in 1764, he became a pastor. He served one church for 16 years and another for 27 years. And his preaching and mentorship influenced William Wilberforce, who used his life to the end of his life for abolishing the slave trade in England. Newton also wrote a song that I'm pretty sure you've heard of. It starts like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Have you been set free by the grace of Jesus Christ? Have you received the real freedom that matters? If you are willing, know that he looks at your sin and your bondage, the sin that keeps you in bondage, and he says, charge that to my account so I can set you free. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he said, charge that to my account. And that he went to the cross, he was taking our sins upon himself. He who is innocent, taking our sins so that we can be forgiven and that we may become the righteousness of God. And that it is only through Jesus Christ and it is only through the grace of God, this free gift, that we can be saved. This is received not by any good works or trying hard or turning over a new leaf, but it's received by faith alone, believing you, trusting you, asking for this. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that is still in rebellion to you, that is not yet reconciled to you, that they're facing their sin right now, that they would turn their back on their sin, they would turn to you as the one that saves them from their sin because you went to the cross for them, Lord God. Lord, will you speak to the, the hardest sinner in this room, Lord, the hardest sinner hearing this, and may they realize that you died for them that you have paid the price. May they turn to you, receive you right now, and be set free by your free gift. Thank you for changed lives. Like John Newton. Thank you for the work of Christians in this world like William Wilberforce. May you use us as well to be your workers, to let other people know about forgiveness, and to help them in every good work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.